So what we're trying to do this year is go deeper, wider, and higher. And in this series where we're diving deep into stories, we're trying to see how it applies to our own day and age. Uh, some of these stories, as you can see, are quite startling in the way they're recorded. And what we find is some of these things that we are diving into, we might see are just kind of distant folklore. However, there are things there that connect us to the day and age in which we live as well. And that's what we want to sort through in our story of Samson today. And I want to talk a little bit about the brutality of Samson. That stands out above everything in this story. One of the things that we find about Samson is he's an individual that has superhuman strength in terms of how he is represented in this story, and yet he is very weak in his character. He allows anger and revenge to be his driving force. And when we look at the life of Samson, we are looking at a model of a superhuman type of individual that is kind of modeled after a lot of superhumans. Um, Samson, akin to Hercules, has these powers that is able to do good or bring harm to humanity. The story of Samson really does read like a folktale, and I think one of the things that we find is we are drawn to these type of stories of amazing feats of strength. But in reality, it is beyond all probability. I read for you a section out of Judges chapter 15, and as you were listening to it, you're probably going, that's impossible. You're going to catch all these foxes, tie their tails together, set them on fire, and have them run through a crop and destroy the crop. You're going to take a jawbone of an ass and kill a thousand men with it. That probably is all just kind of a, a story that is intended to cause us to sit up and take notice. Here is an individual that is deeply flawed in many ways. Even though he has chosen to be a leader in the nation of Israel at a very precarious time, yet he is an individual that allows his emotions to overtake him and to allow his vengeance to drive him. So he is called one of the judges, and he is an individual that is the last judge that is found in the book of Judges. Now, a judge is not the same thing as a robe-wearing um, individual that makes a decision on a case. A judge in the Old Testament, especially in this book, is a military leader. And the military leaders are bringing people out of a situation where they have been oppressed and harmed by other enemies that are living in a clan-like organization in a time of human history. So Samson's the very last one, but... It's interesting, the very last verse of the book of Judges in chapter 21 tells us that during this time, Israel had no king 
but everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the mantra of the book. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Everybody's living by their own standards. Everybody's doing what they want to do. Now, I think the book of Judges sequentially gives us judge after judge after judge after judge, and all of them are failures because they do not deliver Israel permanently from their enemy. But it does show something that they need. And in chapter 21 of Judges, what we find is that this book is probably a setup to show the need for a monarchy. So right after the book of Judges, you find the book of Ruth that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But then comes 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel in the Old Testament is the effort of establishing a king, the very first monarchy in this new nation that has come out of Egypt. And so the book of 1 and 2 Samuel tell us the story of Saul, David, and Solomon, the three kings of Israel. And it seems that the book of Judges is telling us that things won't go right for the nation until they get a righteous king on the throne that can lead them through this turbulent time. Well, this turbulent time can be reflected in this sequence here. So the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt during the time of the Exodus. They wander in the wilderness for about 40 years before they actually go in to the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. After the time of conquest, there are still enemies that surround the nation of Israel, some of them being the prominent ones that are mentioned quite often in the Old Testament, the Canaanites and the Philistines. Now keep the Philistines in the back of your mind, okay? Yes, the Philistines, the story of David and Goliath, that comes later in the book of 1 Samuel. What we find is then the monarchy begins, and the monarchy becomes the way out of this cyclical pattern that's reflected like this. So in the book of Judges, you have a judge who is a military commander, sometimes a warrior as well, and it was believed that because the nation of Israel did not keep the covenant with God, that God allowed these enemies to come in and to take them captive. When they enter into this conflict, they need new leadership to enable to get out of it. And so you have a period of about 400 years. That's a long time, right? 400 years where judge after judge after judge leads, but they never have a permanent victory. It's always a short-lived victory. So what happens is that this is a very troublesome time. What a horrendous time to live. And it's sort of reflected in this quote from uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, the times, not men, create disorder. I would say it's both. Both men and the times we live in can create disorder. So how will order come to the nation of Israel? Well, supposedly these, these different judges will lead them into that. But what we find is each judge has their own issues. And in the case of Samson, he cannot control his anger. He cannot control his hatred. He cannot control his vengeance. Are you following what I'm saying? 
And even though the Spirit of God is upon him in the sense that he's one that is called to be a leader for the nation during this troublesome time, he always falls short because of his character flaws. You know, human history is marred with violence and cruelty not only because we're fighting for a just cause, but because of the human leaders that lead us into those conflicts. And sometimes the decisions that are made at the top do not take into account the disorder that it brings to the entire world. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind as well. So we've been talking a little bit that each story in the Bible has different levels that you can understand. A swimmer's level above the water, a snorkel level kind of below the water line, and a scuba level which looks deep. So let's do that with Samson for a moment. So here's what Judges 21-25 says. Keep this in the back of your mind. In those days, Israel had no king. Every did, uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the story of Samson is a simple story on the surface. Um, what we're told is that he is a miraculous birth. He's an individual that has been given extraordinary physical strength. And uh, he is the one that is chosen for this period of time to deliver Israel from the oppressive Philistines. Now, the Philistines are a very, very powerful force in the world at this time. They were the ones that started to uh, develop weaponry. They had the use of iron. The Israelites didn't. So the Philistines had armament. So think again of Goliath, right? Think of David and Goliath's story. David has a, cling, a slingshot, but Goliath has a helmet and a breastplate and a spear and a shield, right? So there's, there's no match. I mean, Israel's going to lose every time against the Philistines. But what we find is that Samson actually does not lead the people into freedom. He's more concerned about his own personal issues and he had a real obsession with women. In his story, there are several women that he desires. He desires a Philistine woman, an enemy, that he wants to make his wife. He visits a prostitute, and I think we're all familiar with the Delilah, right? Where Delilah cuts his hair because that's the secret of his strength. Again, this folklorish type of tale that as it's put together. What is done to him, and a lot of it is because of his own stupidity, he then retaliates because he carries this personal vendetta. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'm just going to summarize as we go to the snorkel level a little bit uh, what's in these chapters. So in chapter 13... There's a very familiar pattern that occurs. The pattern is there is a woman that cannot have children. She's barren. And God visits her. The angel of the Lord visits this woman. She's not even named. She's considered to be the wife of Manoah. So do you see even how women are respected in this day and age, right? They're not even named here. But an angel of the Lord 
comes to this wife who is childless and says that you're going to get pregnant, you're going to give birth to a son. Then, in chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you do not eat anything unclean, and you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. So what happens here is this miraculous birth story is given with a condition. And the condition is you keep this vow, you keep this promise to God. What is that? That you're not going to drink, drink any wine or anything that is made from grapes. When you have the son, you don't give him a haircut. That's part of the condition. And the son is also to have no contact with the dead. So the angel of the Lord puts a calling upon this young man who is named Samson upon his life. And what we find taking place is if he keeps the vow that God will continue to be with him, if he doesn't keep these vows, then God will lift his presence from Samson. So that's chapter 13. And what we find then is Samson, as he grows, we're not told anything about his boyhood. All we know is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, chapter 13, verse 25, that the Spirit of God is stirring within this man to become something special. Now, in chapter 14, we're told about the first marriage of Samson. Samson is an individual that has an Achilles heel. He finds these foreign women attractive. And he says to his parents in chapter 14, I want this woman from the Philistine race. Now, there's some pushback on that from the parents, um, but we see in chapter 14 that after mom and dad say, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? And Samson insists. Now it says in a parenthesis in verse 4, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So the editor of this story says, no, 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 Samson was trying to marry a Philistine so he could get in on an inside job with the Philistines and could destroy them from within. Okay, so what happens now is they have the wedding ceremony and then they have the reception. And it tells us in verse 5 that in the meantime, Samson does something remarkable. He is going to an area called Timnah when he encounters a lion. And the lion uh, comes powerfully and attacks him. But Samson is so powerful that he is able to conquer the lion. And, and then, he, uh, then he goes on. So he goes on to his wedding reception. And um, as he gets to the wedding reception or feast, um, most scholars think this feast was pri primarily a drinking party. So again, think of he's not allowed to have wine and alcohol as part of this vow that has been made to God. But he does. 
And then he does something very, very stupid. What he does is he, after he marries this Philistine woman, in the reception, he tells a riddle. And the riddle is found in chapter 14, and here's the setup for it. So Samson says, verse 12, let me tell you a riddle. If you can give me the answer within seven days of this feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. So you know what? Samson also liked to do gamble. Okay? So he says, if you can solve this riddle, I'll buy you new clothing. If you can't solve the riddle, you buy me new clothing. Okay, what's the riddle? Well, here it is. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. When he, uh, when he was attacked by this lion, and he kills this carcass, he reaches inside this lion, and there were bees inside this lion, and there was honey inside, and he scoops out this honey, and he eats it. So... Here's the riddle. Out of the eater, the lion, something sweet, the honey. Out of the strong, the lion, something sweet, the honey. Well, let's go back to this for a second. He's not to have any contact with the dead. Now he's killed this lion. He's not only killed the lion, but he is uh, eating the honey that's inside of the lion. So as a result, he then sets up this riddle. Now stick with me here. And it becomes the first motivation for him to seek revenge. So what happens is the women in Samson's life are always, always turning on him and betraying him. And so what happens here is the wife prompts Samson to tell her the answer to the riddle. And as she keeps coaxing him, what she does is... She gets the answer. And then she turns on him and tells the answer to the guys that he made this bet with. And as a result, what happens is now he's in debt. As a gambler, he, he owes this to these individuals. So what does he do? Now listen. Verse 19 of chapter 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He goes to a city called Ascalon. And he kills 30 men, strips them of everything, and that's the clothes that he gives to the guys that he makes a bet with. You see what I'm saying? Not much character here, right? So he goes and he kills 30 men in the story, and he gives them this, uh, the, the clothing. Okay, so he's gone a while. At the end of chapter uh, 14, he finds out after he comes back, that his wife, that he just married, was given to his best man. Isn't this intriguing? Now, in chapter 15, Samson finds out where his wife is, that she's with his best man. I mean, this is, this is soap opera stuff. And he goes and to where his wife is, and the wife's mother, uh, father steps in, and says, no, 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 I have given her to another man. So Samson, chapter 15, says, well, 
now I really have a right to get even with the Philistines because this is a Philistine dad that is protecting this Philistine uh, daughter. And that's when he catches these 300 fox, ties them tail to tail, and sets fire to their harvest. So what happens is the Philistines um, hear that the cause of this is Samson, and in revenge, instead of getting revenge on him, they take his wife and his father's wife and burn them alive. So, unbelievable, right? So now he is going to uh, want to get even, and if we fast forward, um, you'll find that as the Philistines come in, they tie him up because of his strength, he breaks the bonds, and he finds a jawbone of a donkey, and he goes out and he kills a thousand men. Okay, now what happens? Well, after he's killed all these men, what we find is he is an individual that is brutal, not brave. We find that he finds another woman that he loves, and her name is Delilah. And that's chapter 16. And now there's this vendetta that's going on between Samson and the Philistines. And they want to know the secret of his strength. And so they, they pressure Delilah to get the answer to this. And what we find taking place is that Delilah three times keeps asking, and Samson keeps giving her the wrong answer. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 16, he finally succumbs and he tells her the truth. That the strength is in this Nazarite vow where his hair is cut. And if it's cut, he will lose his strength. So in chapter 16, it says here, this, uh, after Delilah, while he is asleep, cuts his hair, the Philistines, verse 21, seize him, gouge out his eyes, and take him to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So what happens here is he is captured by the Philistines. He's weak, and his eyes have been gouged out. They didn't think that they need to keep his head shaved so that he continues to be weak. His hair begins to grow, and as a result, here's this blind individual that is brought out at one of the feasts of the false god Dagon, and he's to entertain them. He's in the temple of Dagon, his eyes are gouged out, and he asks to be put up to the pillars of this temple. And it is there, it says in chapter 16, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He pushes these columns and the entire temple collapses and kills all these Philistines, including himself. Now that's quite a story, isn't it? Now you can go in a hundred different directions with this story. But what we find is he's an individual that is driven. Driven by violence, driven by hatred, driven by revenge, driven by vengeance. I think that one of the things that the nation of Israel was hoping for 
was that a king would resolve this constant cycle of killing and violence. And that the story of the judges is a setup to choose the right guy that would lead the nation so that they could live in peace and in prosperity. Now, well, here's what's ironic. When you fast forward to 1 Samuel, they choose a young man by the name of Saul, and that's a story in and of itself. But Saul is an individual that fits the template of Samson. He's an individual that's a warrior. He's an individual that looks strong. He's an individual that plays the part. And so what happens is this continued conflict occurs in the story of the nation. Maybe the story of Samson is the tragedy that comes when power and revenge and retaliation is the primary motivating cause of the world's history. And this story might just be what happens to unrestrained power that can spiral out of control and when it does, it will threaten social stability, right? That everyone is placed into a position of vulnerability when this type of thing happens, where leaders do not use wisdom, when leaders are out of control, when leaders disregard the humanity of other people for the sake of their own power or profit, that type of thing. So maybe humanity will only survive and thrive if leaders show the way and if they have the ability to show some compassion and mercy, if they have the ability to be diplomatic rather than always use hatred and revenge and violence as a way of moving their story forward. What kind of king will Israel choose? You think that they would learn their lesson, but they don't. They choose Saul. Saul makes his own stupid mistakes and then David replaces him and David is a man of war. David is also a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us, but he's a man of war. And then Solomon, his son that takes the reign, is not a man of war, he's a man of diplomacy, but what he does is he intermarries all these foreign women as diplomatic ties to them. He's an individual that initially ruled with wisdom and then that wisdom got away from him. And he makes all of these ties and that the, the scriptures tell us that Solomon's heart was turned away from God by the women that he followed and married. This is a complex history. How do we sort it out for our own day and age? Let, so let me just tell you what I think you do with a story like this. Number one, I think you realize that this is probably more folk folklore than it is history, okay? It's okay to say that. Every culture has its folklore, right? Some of it is innocent, some of it is violent. Did George Washington really cut down a cherry tree? Did George Washington really say, I cannot tell a lie? We don't know, right? The folklore that we believe will set us down a particular path. And if we don't realize where it's taking us, it can lead to all kinds of difficulties within a society, both ours and the ones that we are in conflict with. 
It's amazing to me that humanity will not learn that diplomacy is at the heart of safety, is at the heart of peace, is at the heart of prosperity, but rather we continue to use violence over and over again. And the tragic story of Samson is the story about violence and power and revenge and retaliation out of control. And when that happens, you have an endless cycle of brutality. You can't break the cycles of brutality with more brutality. I think that's the lesson that we learn here. At some point, there has to be a better way. And yet, there's something inside all of us as human beings that want another Samson. Because we want the tough guy. We want the Rambos of the world to cause us to win. This should be deeply troubling, especially for those of us who claim to be followers of the Prince of Peace, the one who laid his life down rather than picking up a sword. I don't think we can brush off the thought about other ways of solving the problems in our world besides violence. I sure wouldn't want Samson to have the, the codes to the nuclear armament that we have nowadays, would you? Oh my gosh. The legend of Samson recognizes that the longer we live and the more potential that we have as human beings, we can bring physical, economic, political, and social pain in this world. And yet there are some people that are trying fervently to be a voice of reason in a world out of control. And you might know some of them. They might be philosophers or songwriters or poets. For it seems as though the philosophers and the poets and the songwriters are the ones that can capture the imagination of the human experience. Well, there's one that is going to be released. Remember a few weeks back I told you how Paul Simon just put a new, uh, new um, piece together called Seven Psalms. You remember that? Uh, that it was released in May. And it's interesting to me how these old timers like Paul Simon and Cat Stevens are individuals as they get older are getting more spiritual in the way they're trying to understand how the world works and how we can make the world a better place. So in June, if you kind of rewind, there's an artist by the name of Cat Stevens who put out songs like Peace Train back in the 70s and so forth. He became a Muslim and changed his name to Yusuf. And for many years, he was off the stage and did no recording, did no songwriting. But what we find is just recently, he's kind of picked back up this ability that he has to uh, record songs and write songs that show a better way. And in the month of June, he's going to have a new release of material uh, that um, is going to be called The King of a Land. Now, here's what's fascinating about it. The King of a Land is being used in such a way that it is to try to influence 
the next generation to a better way. And so he wrote this op-ed about his new music, and he came up with 10 essentials for all leaders, political, religious, um, you know, all these type of things. And here's what he said will make a better world. Even if you are a king, you're still a servant of God. Remove hatred through education and spread peace. Feed the hungry. We are all humans that make mistakes, so be forgiving. Help the sick and the homeless. Be a, uh, beware of negative people in your circle. Everyone has a part to play. Teach them to work together. Be just and don't show favoritism. Listen to constructive criticism and be a guardian to all faiths and the precious earth we all share. So there was a pre-release of this song, The King of a Land. And it's used in a cartoon form, but I think it carries a powerful message. Let's watch. If I was a king of a land I'd free every woman and man I'd let them go set them free to serve you if I knew every fish in the sea and every bird in the tree I'd hear their call Hey, hey, hey. 
was a king of a land. If I was a king of a land, I'd free every woman and man. I'd let them go. That's a fascinating piece because it takes into account that uh, teaser in the Firecat Fire album from the 1970s and brings it into this, if I could do this, if I could do that, where, where does it lead? The peace train. That's the closing image of that. So I, I was just thinking about how do we apply the story of Samson? I think we apply this story in a way that we have to do our part, however small or however big, to try to work for peace and diplomatic resolution to conflict rather than seeing violence as a way to solve everything. I think it's something we should pray for. I think it is something that we can lead the way on. And uh, in your world, wherever that's at. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the sons and the daughters of God. Stand with me. So here's a prayer that I'd like to close with. <clears throat> oh God, you love justice and you establish peace on earth. We bring before you the brutality of our world, the absurd violence and the many wars that are breaking the spirit of the peoples of the world. The militarism and the armaments race are threatening life on the planet. Human greed and injustice breed hatred and strife. Send your spirit and renew the face of the earth and teach us to be compassionate toward the whole human family. Strengthen the will of those who fight for justice and for peace. Lead all nations into the path of peace and give us a peace which the world cannot give. Amen and amen. Thank you. So, complex story that has many more angles to it. But I trust that we will walk out of here. May grace and peace be upon you. May the love of God rest upon you. Amen. Have a great weekend.